0: We you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 11. Revelation 11 for our study. As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, I must say that I am indebted in particular to two. Secondly, to my missionary friend, David Minnick, who worked with me at school on the Dean of Men's staff. Both of them wrote their Ph.D. dissertations on the Book of Revelation. I found his work to focus on Christ that gives us a good understanding. last year and presented his ministry to us he wants to go to australia to Let's pray together, Father, as we go through this, this text, and as we see the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to save people from their sin, we pray that people would likewise today be saved from their sin as they see the mercy of our great Savior Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us a bigger understanding of who you truly are so that we can worship you more rightly. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard of the story of David and Goliath, yet perhaps you haven't thought through what David faced before he used his long-range weapon on the giant. You see, the whole story of David isn't simply that he slung a stone and the giant came tumbling down. You remember that as 1 Samuel 17 begins, the army of Israel is petrified before the great giant of the Philistines. The hope of victory was doubtful. Then young David arrives on the scene with food, and he hears the challenge of the giant. He rises to the challenge, but David is challenged himself by his brother. And then he is challenged to fight with armor, armor that he doesn't know how to use, So the story of David and Goliath isn't a simple, unresisted battle. You see, there were hardships along the way that make the story what it is. And even so, Jesus Christ's conquest to reclaim the earth is going to be met with resistance. And he is going to allow it. See, leading up to Revelation 11, we've seen... Jesus Christ's authority exerted over the churches of Asia Minor. And we have seen him step forward to take the task of the Father to reclaim the earth from usurpers. In chapter 6 and following, heaven has hailed down judgments upon the earth, yet not all the earth. Those judgments were both partial and particular. The severity of those judgments is increased for those who oppose Christ. And they bypass those who run to Christ. Then the plot expands as demons from the abyss enter the story to torment and to destroy those who oppose Christ in chapter 9. Then in chapter 10, a mighty angel from heaven plants his feet on land and sea, issuing earth's eviction notice. No more delay. The days of the seventh trumpet will be it. So the conflict we've been studying has been escalating. Notice has been given. The countdown clock is about to start. Now what is Christ's plan as he seeks to reclaim the earth? Does he snap his fingers and all his enemies are slain and his people are left standing? No. This book isn't apocalyptic like that, where the sides of good and evil are fixed and faded. Yes, Jesus does come to judge the earth, yet up until the final conflict, he desires to turn those who dwell on the earth to himself. Because Jesus is fixed upon mercy to the last moment, he meets resistance as evil raises his champion who will destroy and those on earth scoff at Christ's claim. And Revelation 11 holds the first of three apparent setbacks in this storyline. This chapter holds tough stuff for us to stomach. Yet through it, we see the mercy of Jesus Christ who is coming to reclaim the earth. As we go through this text, we'll learn what those on earth hear and what those on earth see. In the final days. The stage for us is set in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter with rebuilt and functioning Jewish temple and an altar, even in the city of Jerusalem, which is being trampled. And the stage for Christ to come has been set. This is the place and the stage of his choosing. And what he does is put two figures on that stage, according to verse 3. Where Christ says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. You see, what what will those on earth hear? The world will hear of God's power to save those who repent. Because Christ will raise up two prophets in the days of the end, Christ will have them prophesy in the final days. Verses 3 and 4 show us a mighty angel has stated that the final countdown is imminent. And now the days of the final trumpet are specified to us. 1,260 days, which corresponds to 42 months of verse 2, which corresponds to the second half of the 70th week of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27. So these two prophets will be in Jerusalem in the final three and a half years. And their ministry is described by two activities, one physical description and one Old Testament allusion. So, two activities. These are God's two witnesses who will testify the truth in the time of deception about who the true God is. These two are prophets who will proclaim God's Word, particularly the truths that we find in this book, the book of Revelation. Revelation. They are going to proclaim that those who oppose God, those who worship the beast, those who receive its image in their body, which will be necessary to buy and sell, those who do that will drink the wine of God's wrath. They will be tormented in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Yet their message will not be without hope. and We know that because of the way in which they're described. They are clothed in sackcloth, which signifies the only acceptable response to God. And that's repentance. Consider the king of Nineveh and what he said when the prophet Jonah warned them about coming judgment and called them to repent. The king of Nineveh said, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn, that's what it means to repent, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, just as black is the color for a funeral, so repentance is the color for sinful man. God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and that is plainly demonstrated by Christ's decision to have witnesses in Jerusalem in the final days. That's true throughout the Scriptures in God's mercy. We see Noah was sent before the flood, and Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and Jeremiah to Jerusalem. Christ is a God of mercy because He enlists prophets to preach repentance. And those two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth and sent to Jerusalem. And notice in verse four that they are identified in Old Testament language. Revelation eleven four says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And this verse is extremely similar to the verse you see in the margin, Zechariah four, verse fourteen. We read Zechariah 4 this morning to give us a little bit of background to this. It says, And he said, the angel said to Zechariah, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, to understand this verse, we need to understand the historical context, which we find in the book of Ezra and the rest of Zechariah 4. So the historical context, this is following the exile Israel returns to Jerusalem and begins to rebuild the temple, Ezra chapter 3. But their efforts are opposed, and the work has ceased, chapter 4. And then God raises up two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, to preach God's word to Joshua and Zerubbabel so that they would complete the temple. And they do, Ezra 5 shows us, and Ezra 6. And now we turn to Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4 is an encouragement to Zerubbabel, the civic leader, to rebuild and finish the temple, and he sees a golden lampstand with two olive trees by it that are dispensing oil to the lampstand by golden pipes, and this vision is God's word of encouragement to Zerubbabel to rebuild Zechariah 4.6 says this, This, what he sees, is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So just as the spirit-empowered preaching of two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, is used by God to raise the temple... So the spirit-empowered preaching of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 will be used by God. And according to the book of Zechariah, it'll be used by God to revive the people of Israel. You see, from verse 4, we learn that these two are spirit-empowered prophets. You say, who are they? Well, the text doesn't say, but we can still understand the point. The point is that the Spirit is going to work through these two prophets. As lampstands, they are divine witnesses by which God will give knowledge of His sovereignty and His righteous demands to the nations and warn them of coming judgment that they can expect if they fail to heed God's revelation. And as olive trees, they are witnesses possessing a unique relationship with the Spirit of God. They are sons of oil that stand in the presence of the Lord. So just as the Spirit will speak through these two witnesses one day in the final days, so we've already read in the letters of this book that the Spirit spoke to the churches of Asia Minor. Remember that common refrain to each of the letters? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember what the churches were called? They were lampstands. And from the very first letter to the Church of Ephesus, we learn that a church that won't repent of what is wrong in the church is not going to be a good lampstand, a good witness for Christ. And that church will be moved, it says. These two are God's witnesses, as the churches ought to be. These two prophets in the end are going to rebuke iniquity. They're going to unmask the deceiver. They're going to demand repentance, and they're going to persist against any opposition. And you can imagine that when they do that, they will be hated, and people will want to silence them. So look at verse 5 and 6 of Revelation 11. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That's famine. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And get this, as often as they desire. So Christ will give these power to wield. They're going to be able to instantly judge those whenever they please, those who oppose them. And these kinds of judgments shouldn't be fantastical to us because they've already been demonstrated in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, this kind of thing was done by Moses and Elijah. These prophets will have prophet-like power of those prophets who came before them. And these judgments are necessary, verse 5 shows us, in order to protect them so that their ministry can continue through the duration of this time. The point is, God does not want their preaching to be stopped. But we read these words and wonder, is this appropriate? Is this an appropriate use of force? We may wonder because this is just disturbing and dreadful. But this thought needs to check our wonder. Can we be more pious and holy than God who has given us this word? No? We may wonder, this doesn't seem to fit the pattern of the Scriptures. Because we, as we read the Scriptures, the prophets, the apostles, and the preachers were submitting to being maligned and even murdered. So, for example, the first martyr of the New Testament church, Stephen, he submitted to being stoned, and he prayed for those who were stoning him, that they would be forgiven. We have in the book of Revelation, Antipas from the church of Pergamum, who is martyred. What we find in church history is that those who are Christ's witnesses give their lives for the Lord, but one day, so that the gospel witness in the earth will be to the end These two prophets will be invincible. Now, I began this point by asking, what did those on earth hear? What did those on earth hear? Do you even think that the people of the world heard what these two prophets said? Because many things have been said for many years by many preachers, and no one knows them. No one hears them. They're forgotten. But look at Revelation 11.10 where we find out what they do here. Revelation 11.10 says, These two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That is to say, people around the globe heard about these prophets and were affected by these prophets. By their miraculous power, by their prophetic message, they had been a torment, turning water to blood. Causing famine, but especially preaching repentance and faith in Christ. So the world will hear of God's power to save those who repent. Secondly, I want you to notice what the world will see. Not only what the world hears, but what they will see. Verses 7-11 through show us that the world will see God's power to save those who repent. Because God's people will be vindicated in the end. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, when the two prophets finished their prophesying, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, the abyss, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. You see, after 1,260 days, at the very end of the final days, God determined that their ministry which he had empowered them to perform, was complete. These two were invincible until their work was done. And similarly, God will not take us a moment before our ministry is complete. However, like those churches of Asia Minor, we are not invincible like the two prophets in the end. On January 8th, 1956, five missionaries to Ecuador were attacked. Roger Uterin, Peter Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott had been led of the Lord to serve in missions and had trained for the ministry for years, and they were met with spears. And Jim was only 28 years old. And it was at his 28th year that God saw fit to take him. Because his ministry was complete, just at 28 years of age. Even so, God allowed these faithful prophets to be killed by the beast. This is the first of 36 references to this character who comes out of the abyss, like the locust-like demonic horde of the fifth trumpet. He rises, he attacks, conquers, and kills. And that's all that we hear about him at this point. And I believe that's because we're not supposed to focus on the beast. So let's focus on something else. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies of the two prophets will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So these two prophets will lie in the streets of Jerusalem. The city is literally Jerusalem. But symbolically, it's wicked like Sodom and Egypt. But Jerusalem is especially wicked because it is the place where Christ was crucified. These two will have ministered in a wicked place. And that point must have resonated with the church of Pergamum, which was located where Satan dwelt, Revelation chapter 2. You see, there are churches in Sin City, just as there will be two prophets in wicked Jerusalem one day. Verse 9 and 10 says this, For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, that is to say some from all around the globe, this is a global thing, they will gaze, they will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange gifts. This is not a reference to Christmas. But earth dwellers will rejoice when they see the death of these two prophets. They will witness it. And across cultures, it is the worst kind of indignity to refuse a person burial. These will celebrate their death as if it's a holiday. They will be glad to be rid of of hearing these two prophets speak God's judgment upon them. This is like a rebellious 19-year-old who is glad to be out from under his parents' roof. That is a shameful thing. It indeed highlights these people's depravity. But remember, when it talks about those who dwell on the earth, this is a description of unbelievers. Those whose hope is limited to this present life. This is the only life they can imagine. This is the life that they live for. So certainly they were afraid of these two prophets, just as people today are afraid of contracting coronavirus. They live in fear because all of their hope is in this life. And brothers and sisters, except for the grace of God, we would be just like these. The two final prophets of God have been silenced. But the truth that they proclaimed was not destroyed. And this is vividly displayed when earth's holiday-like celebration abruptly ends. Look at verses 11 and 12. But after three and a half years, the spirit of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who Saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. The ultimate watch party. Earth dwellers will fear when they see the resurrection of the two prophets. You see, God has the power to raise his people from the dead and bring them to himself. But this scene is far more than resurrection. This is not typical resurrection. This scene is a statement. It is vindication of those messengers and their message. This is the kind of vindication that Christ promised the small, steadfast church in Philadelphia. Remember, that church was the one that was weak in attendance but strong in testimony. They had been maligned by their community, but Christ promised them vindication. He said... I will make those of the synagogue of Satan come and learn that I have loved you. He will vindicate them. And how encouraging it must have been for the small church of Philadelphia to hear that the two prophets of the end will likewise be vindicated. And that shows us, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that it is hard when you and I tell our neighbors the gospel, and they get what we're saying, and they ask us this question. Realizing that we have told them that there is salvation in none but Christ, they ask us, so you're saying that Muslims, Buddhists, devout Catholics, and liberal Methodists are going to hell? You know, in that moment, you and I would really appreciate if God would call down from heaven and say, yes. But he doesn't do that until the very end. He promises that one day he will vindicate us. Young people, remember that when your parents give you the gospel, one day God is going to openly back up what they are teaching you. So listen to what your parents are saying when they give you the gospel, because it's right. Just as many saw these two who were dead, so many will see them vindicated. Now look at verse 13. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest, which is probably those in Jerusalem, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And this is a striking response because it's not the typical response that we've seen. The typical response is at the end of chapter 9 where it says they refuse to repent. And some people wonder if what we read here is genuine repentance or if it's forced submission. Like every knee will bow to Christ one day from Philippians 2. But it seems from the language here, the context, and from the greater biblical context that this indeed is true repentance, particularly of the Jews. You might look at the last words of verse 13 and say, how does giving God glory relate to repentance at all? Well, we need to remember some of the Sunday school stories we learned long ago. Remember the story of Achan? He was the one who stole and took things when they conquered Jericho, hid them under his tent. You remember that Israel was then defeated by Ai and Joshua was to go through the people of Israel and determine where the sin was that was in the camp. Remember what Joshua said to Achan? He said, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him. And tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Joshua told Achan to give glory to God by confessing his sin. You see, when we state that God is right and we are wrong, God is glorified. So consider, brothers and sisters in the Lord, if and when we might present ourselves as perfect saints, not needing our brothers and sisters in the Lord to pray for us, God's not getting glory from us. Because we're putting on a show as if we're always doing the right thing. Now, in saying that, I'm not calling for this generation's shameless transparency, but I am calling for God's people to be honest and humble. Because when we are, that gives God glory. So these, not everyone in the earth, but these in the end, in this place it seems, they will repent. So, through Christ's judgments and his prophets, some will be saved one day. And the suffering of the saints then is going to result in the glory of God, and that's a wonderful thing. And then with that, we come to the end of our interlude, the interlude that began in chapter 10 and has gone all the way through this verse, chapter 11, 11, verse 14. This interlude has refocused the scene, not heaven and earth and the abyss. Now the scene of Christ reclaiming the earth has come to Jerusalem. And it has explained Christ's strategy in the last and final days. The gospel of forgiveness of sins that started in Jerusalem, Luke 24, 47, will circle the globe and return to Jerusalem in the final days. Brothers and sisters, that is the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the authority to judge the earth has been given. His conquest is going to be met with resistance. His people are going to be slain. And that might seem like failure, but it's only apparent because God's in control of all of it. He knows things to the very day, the exact day. And no matter how much Christ is resisted or His followers are resisted, Christ is going to accomplish the victory of God. And He's going to do so While holding out the hope of the gospel to all who receive it. What a gracious God our Lord Jesus Christ is. Father, we praise and glorify him who has been kind to us. To help us realize that we have been loved by him. And how good and gracious you are to even in the time of judgment show mercy to send not great champions who will destroy, but two prophets who will preach the gospel so that people will be saved. What a God of mercy you are. We praise you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.